This is Gene Lance on the Workers' Beat Extra. Today I'm going to talk about labor history real close to us here in North Texas with Dick J. Revis, author and activist. Good morning, Dick. Good morning. So what, what did you write for the Texas Observer about Fort Worth? I wrote an article about a communist organizer of unemployed people who, who died in the custody of the Tarrant County or Fort Worth Sheriff's Department in 1933. Died in jail? He, well, he died in a hospital, but they took him from jail to the hospital and he lived about two minutes at the hospital. I see. Okay, start at the beginning then. What was he in for? And this guy was, grew up in an ordinary working class family in the Midwest. <clears throat> when he got to be about 17, left home, went to work in a copper mine in New Mexico as a carpenter in that mine. Then World War I came along, he apparently joined later said that he was fool like everybody else. When he got out of the army, he went to Houston, couldn't find a job, moved into a Salvation Army shelter. They gave him sort of a Reuben board in exchange for working there. I guess he was probably Mr. Fix-It. And while he was there, some members of the Houston Unemployed Council came into the Salvation Army and he started hanging out with them. Now, the Unemployment Council was a program of the Communist Party. They started it, they ran it, and its chief purpose had been, or its chief purpose was to crusade for something called the Worker Social Insurance and Unemployment Bill otherwise known as the Lundin Bill. But they were trying to get unemployment insurance. That's right, and Social Security. The difference between the Social Security we got and the one the communists agitated for was that theirs said that the employer should pay all the monthly contributions, whereas we, we split that with the employer and the Roosevelt when Roosevelt passed it. So... I always thought Francis Perkins invented Social Security. No. The, it was, it was the first Social Security bill, this, this worker social insurance and social in, and unemployment insurance bill was introduced in 1930 by a member of the Farmer Labor Party named Lundin, who, who got the bill from the Communist Party. It wrote the bill. Lundin started crusading for it every year and the CP formed the unemployed leagues to uh, unemployed councils to agitate for it. And- Well, that, just, so, just that right there is pretty astounding because I know a lot of radicals today that don't believe in legislation. They don't believe in working for legislation and think that the unions are wasting their time trying to get legislation. Well, I, I don't think that the historical record would hold that up because they got it done. And what we have is not perfect, but 
it's better than what they had. So anyway, they were agitating for workers, social and unemployment security. <clears throat> and the other thing they did was that they fought evictions. And this is being done again in this country. And the way they fought them was that when a landlord files an eviction notice, constables come out, remove the furniture from the evicted person's home if the person hasn't left. And when that furniture is outside the house, the eviction is over. That's the so, legal status. That's the legal. And so what the unemployed councils did was get a big crowd together whenever there was an eviction that they were going to oppose. And when the constables set the furniture, all the furniture out on the street, the unemployed council and the family that lived there would then go in the house and take the furniture with them. This forced the landlords to go get a new eviction order. And that takes weeks or months, depending on what state you're in. So they were going around del delaying evictions with this kind of uh, content uh, all over the country. Mm -hmm. and, and at that time, the Houston Communist Party was the, was the biggest party in Texas, right? I would guess that it was. There was nobody in Dallas-Fort Worth. There was one guy up in Breckenridge. But in 33, the Houston Communist Party sent this guy that met at the Salvation Army, T.E. Barlow, first name was Terrence, but he was known as T.E., sent him to Fort Worth to do unemployed work, unemployment councils. And early, sometime in 1933, and his first steps were the unemployment hung out in that big courtyard around the Fort Worth courthouse <laughs> and the unemployed people. And so he started going there and organizing them. And in June of, on June the 19th of 1933, there was a man, a refinery worker, oddly enough named Jack Daniel <laughs> being evicted with his wife and three kids there in Fort Worth. Uh, and the unemployed councils got up a demonstration. The, the Star-Telegram says there were from 30 to 100 people there, depending on what type of day it was. Uh, and they, they had already delayed eviction for Jack Daniel twice. And on June the 19th, they did it a third time. And that third time they got arrested, 29 of them, 29 of the demonstrators. What were they charged with? I don't remember, but it didn't matter. I see. <laughs> if, you were, if you were red in, in the depression or if you were a civil rights movement that's worker in the 60s, it didn't matter. Anyway, they put them in jail they were in jail a week or two till they got bombed and got out. And on August the 31st, they staged another demonstration. This one was to protest the elimination of jobless benefits by 
the female Ferguson, by the, what was her name? Ma Ferguson, they called her, who was governor at the time. And they held a demonstration to protest her elimination of those benefits. And then Barlow and two others went to the telegraph office to send her a telegraph to say, we have just demonstrated against what you did. When they came out of the telegraph office, the police arrested them for disturbing the peace. The justification for the charge was that somebody at the demonstration had proposed that they should go break into a food warehouse. They didn't say Barlow or the other two guys had done it. <laughs> they arrested Barlow and his two companions. And Barlow goes to jail and it, how do you say? It was the practice, at least in Dallas and Fort Worth, to always have a bully in, in jail. And you would use that bully if you were one of the jailers to beat up on some prisoner you didn't like. And I, I've run across this both in Fort Worth and in Dallas. And and you say, my sources for what I know were the daily work, first the Southern Worker, which is where I discovered the story, and the Daily Worker. Both of these were Communist Party publications, which tended to double the size of attendance at demonstrations and otherwise make stories more interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Basically true. But I compared those to the reporting in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. <clears throat> and, and it used both as sources. I don't know if I use common turn records or not. I'm not sure, but the Communist Party sent its archives to Moscow, to the Communist International, which allowed American scholars to reproduce them back in the late late nineties. So you can go and see what's in the records of the communist party about events like this. Anyway, Barley got beat up by a man whom the daily worker said was a former boxer. I don't know if that's true because there were two guys beat up in Dallas in 31 and the daily worker said they were beat up by a boxer. <laughs> but some kind of bully in any case. Well, during the depression, there were, there were uh, a lot of people that were just workers that would, would fight because they were, they were desperate for any kind of job. And it wasn't true. All I'm saying is I could not find any record of these people as boxers, That's which if they just fought sort of semi-professional, there wouldn't be any record, right? Well, but I'm just saying that they were hired to, to do street fights. My father was one of them. Huh. You know, I always ask him about being a boxer because he, I thought that many had been in the ring and all that. And he said, no, they just, they would just find two guys and put them up to it and bet on them. Huh. It was more like cockfights than, than something. Anyway, Barlow was beat up by this guy and he, he banged his head against the steel bunk. And the next day, the, he was moved to the county 
county jail from the city jail. Mm -hmm. And his two buddies were left behind in the city jail. So our information isn't as good. And what the newspaper said was that Barlow was playing poker on the afternoon he was moved to county jail and that the other prisoners noticed that he was kind of phased out and was complaining of a headache. They hear him fall out of his bunk and they go running to him and they find find him he's in real bad shape. They tell the guards and the guards call the jail doctor. Took him two hours to get there. And they take Barlow over to a hospital where he dies two minutes later. Of cerebral hemorrhage, I guess. And the official autopsy shows that he had a one inch fracture in his forehead and blood clots. And they attribute his death to that, meaning essentially to the beating of the guy who, of the bully in the jail. Well, Barlow's two brothers come down and them and the unemployed leagues hire a doctor to do a second autopsy. And the doctor's second autopsy is much different. It says Barlow's back of his skull was back. His shoulder was broken or dislocated. His feet showed burn marks on him as if he'd been tortured. And I forget what else, but it, oh, bruises all over here and there. The second autopsy showed he'd been tortured and beat, beat the hell out of him. I don't guess we'll ever know which autopsy told the truth. <laughs> The plain facts of the matter are he died because somebody beat him up. If, if he died by the, them burning his feet and all, it had to happen during the night after he had been beat up by the boxer. I see. When Barlow died, the, the presumed boxer was released from jail. But, I mean, that was the way the deal with these guys went. I'm gonna, I've got you in jail. You're going to stay here till you do me a favor right? and beat up one of the other prisoners. And three weeks later, the same guy, the supposed boxer, was back in jail for auto theft. So we know what his character was. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he died September the 1st. And on September the 4th was the Labor Day parade the first one Fort Worth had held in 10 years. And it was led off by the chief of police and a politician, Texas House, I think, but but by a local Democratic politician. And then followed the police union band and then followed the labor contingents then followed some military outfit. And at the very rear, there were two floats for black people with bathing beauties on them. And later that day, the AFL-CIO <coughs> held a barbecue at a, beside a lake and elected a beauty queen, but of course she was white. Yeah, 
That, that would have been an, the AFL, just before they had the AFL. Oh, that's right. It would have been the AFL. So anyway, it was a pretty sad labor movement. And the newspaper stories leading up to Labor Day said they were afraid the Reds would try to join. By that, I think they meant the unemployed council. But the Reds did not try to join because Barlow was dead and he was the organizer, I guess. But it so happened that his funeral was on Labor Day, which was September the 4th that year. I say his funeral, his wake. According to the Star-Telegram, a thousand people passed by to pay their respects to the body. A thousand people. A thousand people. And I want to read to you what the newspapers don't do this anymore, but what was written about that at that time. It was Labor Day. A parade swept through the downtown streets as thousands of laborers formed a line of march to celebrate the reemployment of men long without work. In a building a few blocks away, another long, almost unbroken line filed past a casket. This line, too, was composed principally of laborers. In the casket lay the body of a man who had championed the cause of the laborers, who milled about the building where his body reposed. Indirectly, he had paid with his life for the work he did in their behalf. Attendance at the Shannon's mortuary where the body is awaiting burial estimated that well over a thousand persons passed during the day before the casket. Laborers, many of them in patchwork clothes, removed frayed hats as they went to stand before Barlow's casket. Women, some carrying babies in their arms, came to pay tribute to the man whom they believed had tried to help them when their children were hungry and in want. We don't get journalism like that anymore. Not nearly so descriptive, nor so obviously sympathetic with the masses of people. Anyway, it was a big deal, the wake for him. And a funeral was held, and this is not in my story, apparently held at the request of his two brothers, one of whom was a socialist, but at least one of whom was a Baptist. The preacher who officiated was J. Frank Norris. J. Frank Norris is the man who started the end of the world movement, or the latest one. When the British issued the Balfour Declaration declaring that Palestine was the home of, of the Jews. Uh, Frank Norris says, this is the sign that we've been looking for for the end of the world and the return of Jews, Jesus. And he became a very famous hardline Baptist preacher who at one point killed a man. He and the man were talking in his office and Norris winds up killing him. He says in self-defense, he was never jailed for it. So he was popular enough, he could, it's like Trump said, he could kill somebody on the 
in the middle of Fifth Avenue and get away with it. Yeah. Norris did that. I don't know. I could not find a record of what he said at the funeral, mm-hmm. but it'd sure be a, a fine one to have. And there's still a little sect of Norris followers in Fort Worth. Maybe they have the, the funeral sermon. After the funeral, the party went and buried him. And the man officiating was High Gordon, who was the Texas organizer for the Communist Party, the head honcho in Texas, out of Houston. <clears throat> the newspapers, the Star-Telegram says that, that Gordon gave a little prayer. And the prayer said something to the effect of, Lord, we, we pray for you to help this party so there won't be unemployed councils to celebrate funerals like this anymore. <laughs> I don't know what the truth of that was, but they buried him, you know, with a red flag on the casket and the usual thing at the time. And afterwards, they gave him a tombstone with a hammer and sickle on it. So I guess that's about the story of and that what happened in Fort Worth. It, the one legacy was that uh, Barlow was not alone in being a communist at the time of his death. He had recruited six or eight people who continued to function till they got in a big fac- faction fight and <laughs> pointed fingers at each other a couple of years later. You sent me one of the clippings, Dick Revis. I remember that cast some cast some doubt on that first autopsy because the one you sent me that's the 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 guy that did the autopsy testified at a hearing about it and he said that the reason the te barlow had died was because his skull was too thin he said that his skull was only one sixteenth of an inch and that that was only half of what the skulls of white people were and of course, it made me wonder, oh, what are the skulls of other people? I, I figure it's the same everywhere. This is the but, scientific guy. Yeah, this is the scientific guy. And he had an opinion on on how many, how big a skull white people had. Yeah. So I guess he had another opinion on how many, how thick a skull black people had. I guess he did. I mean, race was... The big obstacle the Communist Party faced in the 30s, in the South at least, was not that they advocated socialism or liked Stalin. It was that they believed in racial integration right. and practiced it. And I mean, everywhere you go, they, they were trying to organize unions and unemployment leagues and everywhere you went, it was hard for white people to show up or to get them to show up. When they did show up, they were sometimes cops. And it was, uh, how do you say, when they were attacked in the press, it was usually for being integrationist. Then, then as now, race yeah. underlay an awful lot of, of things that people said were really about something else. But it yeah. was race, race at the time. But and that first, the first autopsy, it seems to me, was largely discredited because the guy basically said that the cops, the jailers, were not at fault because it was T.E. Barlow's own fault. 
that he had a, an extra thin skull. Yes. He should have been able have, to take a beating. Right. He had too thin a skull, and he was fool enough to get in a fight with another prisoner's probably the way it went down. Now, the hearing did let the, the whole county off. Nobody nobody ever got charged with anything. No one was ever charged. T.E. Barlow died in custody. The same thing happened in the case I looked at in Dallas out of 31. Nobody was charged for beating up on the red prisoners. Well, summarizing about T.E. Barlow and the unemployed council of Fort Worth in 1933, the organizer was arrested. The organizer was beaten while he was in jail. The organizer died as a result yeah. of the beating. Nobody even got chastised in the slightest bit. And that's part of the, the struggle that goes on forever. I've been talking with Dick Revis, who's an author and an activist in Dallas, Texas. And this is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. Thank you.